Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Dr. Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University in Old and New Testament and Biblical Interpretation. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Um, in my previous podcast, I did mention a need that we have as a church, and I want to go ahead and address that again in this podcast, because maybe you didn't catch it, but we are searching for an associate pastor of youth and families. This is a full-time position. It would be an associate pastor that would work directly under me, and it would be focusing primarily upon our youth ministry and also families. We have a very active youth group. Um, our youth pastor, who had been here for a long time, has taken another position. He did a great job, and God has moved him onward, and now we're looking for a man of God that would come and serve us at Emmanuel Baptist Church, also be relating to young families. We have a lot of young families coming to our church, and we just need someone that can equip and disciple them to be uh, the parents that God has called them to be. So if you are interested, you can send us your resume and cover letter, or if you know of somebody that might be interested in serving as our associate pastor of youth and families, we'll put the uh, information in the show notes as to where you can send the resume. It's to our elder, who's the chairman of our search team. His name is Russell Hirschberger. Well, in our past few podcasts, we've been talking about um, what it means to be a Reformed Baptist. We talked about law and gospel distinction. In the previous podcast, I talked about preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And I said that in the next podcast, we would address issues related to how do we teach or preach from the New Testament. And so what I want to do in this podcast is talk about the difference between the indicative mood and the imperative mood and why it's so important to understand these and to bring these into our teaching and preaching. Now, this may be a little bit of Greek, a Greek lesson on the front end, but I'm going to explain the difference between the indicative and the imperative, and then we're going to look at the book of Ephesians and talk about how we see this, especially in Paul's writings, and then how you preach the imperatives in light of the indicatives. So in the Greek language, every verb has a tense, whether it's a past tense or a present tense, it also has um, a mood, the indicative mood and the imperative mood. The indicative mood is the mood of what I call the mood of reality. It is who we are in Christ, what God has done, statements of fact. These deal mainly with theological truths. There's no commands or imperatives in the indicative mood. They're statements of reality. In contrast to that, other verbs in the Greek language are in the imperative mood meaning this is the mood of command. These are commands. They tell us what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And, and so they're, they're in the, command, the imperative or the command mood. And so it's very important that when you preach or teach that you understand the difference between these. But the main thing I want to argue in this podcast is when you preach or teach the commands in the Bible, especially commands to believers— the third use of the law that we talked about a few podcasts ago. So when you're getting to um, epistles, especially in the New Testament, where you are seeing a command to do something, 
we always need to ground that imperative back into what I would call the gospel indicative. So there are gospel indicatives and there are moral imperatives. There are both. And both need to be preached if we're going to be faithful to the text. But the main point is that when you preach the moral imperatives, you need to make sure that you root them or base them in the gospel indicative. Now, this may not make sense to you until I illustrate this with the book of Ephesians. So in the book of Ephesians, we could take probably any of Paul's writings, but let's just take the book of Ephesians because a lot of you are familiar with that. You notice that Paul starts out in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul is going to explain, expound upon how God has blessed us. Now, there's no command there. We're not called to bless God. We're not called to worship God. We're not called to obey God. Paul spends the first three chapters in Ephesians telling us how we are blessed. Again, this is the indicative, what God has done for us. And so, for example, he says there in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. He chose us. That is the aorist middle indicative. So aorist is just basically a past tense verb, a point in time action. God chose us. And it's in the indicative mood, meaning that this is something that God has done. We didn't choose ourselves. We're not commanded to choose God. This is something that God has done for us. You also see that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Again, these are indicative verbs telling us what God has done. And notice that the structure in Ephesians, especially here in um, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, it's one long sentence in the Greek text. It's Trinitarian in nature. It starts with what the Father has done, then moves to what the Son has done, and then moves to what the Holy Spirit has done. And so again, there's no command. There's no imperative. There's nothing that Paul is telling us to do. These are indicative verbs telling us what God has done. He's chosen us. He's predestined us. He's adopted us. He's lavished us with Christ. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. And then in verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory in him when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, you have an inheritance. We've been predestined. We've been um, sealed with the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing that future. God is working out all things according to his purpose. This resounds to the praise of his glory and grace. Again, these are all indicatives. Often what I do when I'm counseling people that are discouraged or depressed, and they're believers, and they're struggling with 
kind of their identity in Christ. They're struggling with self-esteem maybe. I go back and I say, listen, here's what I'd like for you to do. Get a notebook or get a journal and spend some time in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 and write down all of the things that the Bible says about you or what God has done for you in this passage of Scripture. And then meditate upon that. Think about those things. God's not calling you to do anything yet in the book of Ephesians. He's merely telling us what he has done for us. He is the one who's blessed us. He's the one who's chosen us. He's the one who's predestined us. He's the one who's lavished us with forgiveness in Christ. He's the one who's forgiven us. He's the one who's given us an inheritance. He's the one who's given us the Holy Spirit. These are all the things that God has done and who we are in Christ as a result of God's sovereign grace. All in the indicative. Again, there's no commands here that tell us what we should do. And so as you continue on through Ephesians, you get to chapter 2, and Paul tells us what our nature was, what our condition was before our salvation. He tells us in chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and, and you can go on and understand that that teaches total depravity, moral and spiritual inability. It's what we were. Again, Paul's not commanding us to do anything. He's giving statements of fact, all in the indicative. This is who you were before God saved you. And then you you look at that passage of Scripture in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God made us alive. God has seated us. God has showered us with grace. Again, there's no commands here telling us what we should do or how we should act or behavior that we're supposed to, to do. It's all indicative. These are gospel truths of what God has done for us in Christ, and we receive these through grace. As you continue through Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, you get to the end there of chapter 3 where Paul gives that wonderful prayer in 3.14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God or the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly that all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Chapters 1 through 3 is all indicative, what God has done, who we are. And then Paul ends with this wonderful prayer that God would strengthen us. It's a prayer of what God would do in our hearts and how God would strengthen us and Christ's love would, would reign in our hearts. And then he ends with a doxology of giving praise to God. So in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, it is all in the indicative mood, what God has done, who we are in Christ, how we've been blessed by Jesus. Now, one of the hard things about preaching indicative passages is when you get to a sermon prep or you get to the end of your sermon, what's the application? Because in an indicative passages, it doesn't tell us to do anything. 
And so, okay, what am I supposed to do? What's my response to this? Well, the text is not going to come out and tell you what your response is, especially in in Ephesians 1 through 3. Paul's not going to give you what you need to do. And so as a good preacher, what you would need to do is bring in application. And usually the application that comes in regarding indicative passages is worship. Fall on your knees in humility. Think about the joy and the wonder of what God has done for you. Spend time in prayer and thankfulness that God has done these things for you and that this is who you are in Christ. Relish Jesus. Worship Jesus. Thank Jesus. Again, those things may not be explicit in the text. And so as a pastor, as a preacher, as a teacher, you're going to have to bring in those applications as the appropriate response to what God has done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ. So Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, indicative mood. These are gospel indicatives. These are things that God alone has done for us. We're not called to do anything. We're not called to obey. We're not called to respond in any particular way, specifically in the text. It's all indicative. Now, in chapter 4, when you get through chapter 4 through 6, Paul shifts gears. Markedly, distinctly, he shifts to the imperative mood. He tells us then what we are supposed to do, how we're supposed to act. And it's very important that Paul starts with the indicative before he gets to the imperative. Think about if Paul reversed the order for a moment. Let's say that the order was reversed in the book of Ephesians. Let's just say Paul started right out of the gate with, hey, here's the things you need to do. So, for example, chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Okay, there's the command. You see that strong therefore, I urge you, I'm commanding you. I have this longing for you to now walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now that key word is walk, peripateo in the Greek text. And as you notice that, the word to walk, it's an infinitive, but all throughout the rest of the passage between chapters 4 and chapter 6, Paul shifts to the imperative. He's telling us how to walk, how to live what our lifestyle should be as a believer in Christ. Now, what would happen if Paul just started the gospel or Paul just started the book of Ephesians with imperatives? Walk in a manner worthy, and here's all the things you need to do. And he starts listing out all the things that we need to do, and he starts going into how we relate to one another in unity. And then he talks about how we should put off the old self and put on the new self, and how do we deal with sexual temptation. Then he talks about husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters and spiritual warfare, all these things we're supposed to do. If he just started out of the gate with the imperatives, two things would happen based upon our sin nature. Two things would happen if he started with the imperative instead of starting with the indicative. Number one, if Paul gave you a list of things to begin doing, some of you in the flesh would pridefully think, oh, I can do that. Just give me the list and tell me what I need to do, and I will start checking off the list, and I'll start doing this, and I can do this in my own power, and I can be puffed up, and and yeah, I can do this. You're going to be inflated with pride that you can accomplish the list of things Paul has given for you to do. 
Others may look at the list of things Paul has given you to do, and your immediate response is despair, frustration, weakness. I can't even begin to do this. This is such a high bar. I'm going to struggle with this. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to give up before I even start. So if you start with the moral imperative and don't root it in the gospel indicative, it's going to lead to inflated pride or deflated despair. So what Paul has done is he's masterfully said, okay, for the first three chapters, here's what God has done for you. Here's who you are in Christ. Now, therefore, as a result of the gospel indicatives, now live that out. Walk in a manner worthy. And I'm going to start giving commands, Paul says, of how you're to do that. But the, and here's the important thing. The only way you can fulfill these commands is because of what God has done for you and who you are in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you just preach the moral imperatives and tell people to do, 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 obey, 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 and you never give them the, the grounding that they're a new creation in Christ, that they're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that they're chosen, they're adopted, they're forgiven, and you don't lay forth what God has done for them in Christ and who they are in Christ, you're going to lead people to either legalism, moralism, or despair. They're going to be confused. They're going to think they can do it in their own power, or they're not even going to try because they're so deflated. So Paul does switch to the imperative mood, and he begins to tell us in chapter 4 how we're to live. So we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've received. Okay, how do you walk in a manner worthy? The only way you can walk in a manner worthy is because of verse chapters 1 through 3. Because you've been blessed, because you've been adopted, because you've been elected, because you've been predestined, because you've been forgiven, because you've been given an inheritance, because you have the Holy Spirit living in you as a deposit, because you've been saved by grace, because you've been made alive. All of those beautiful things, because God's power is available to you through the resurrection. All these things that Paul talked about in chapters 1 through 3, because those things are true, indicative, therefore you can obey the moral imperatives and the power of the gospel. So when you're preaching, you need to make sure that when you get to the second half of the book of Ephesians or any book of the Bible where there's imperatives, you need to always root those imperatives in the gospel indicatives. In other words, don't tell people what to do or to obey or to live out this passage of Scripture without telling them that they have the power to do it through the Holy Spirit, that they're a new creation in Christ, that they have the forgiveness of sins when they fail. And, and so you've got to really make sure that you're always going back and not just preaching moralism. Not just telling people what to do and what not to do. And scolding your people and saying, you know what, you guys aren't walking in unity. You need to get your act together. That's not what Paul does. Paul has masterfully laid forth, especially in the book of Ephesians and almost all of Paul's writings, the indicative comes first, then the moral imperative. 
And so you go through chapter four and he talks about how we are to grow and speak the truth in love and how we're to support one another and grow to maturity and how we are to put away falsehood and not be angry and not steal and get, get rid of bitterness and malice and, and be forgiving to one another. And then in chapter five, he talks about sexual immorality and impurity and idolatry. He talks about... No, not taking part in unfruitful works of, 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 of unrighteousness. And he talks about being careful how you live, making the best use of time. But then I want to talk to you about how to preach husband and wife relationships, parent and child relationships. Because in chapter 5, Paul addresses husbands and wives. And it can be very easy to go down to chapter 5, verse 22, and begin a sermon by saying, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay, Wives, you better get busy submitting. You're called to submit. You're commanded to submit. Husbands, you better get busy loving your wives unconditionally. You better love your wives the way Christ loves the church. You better do this because Paul is commanding you to do this. Get busy, husbands, loving your wives sacrificially. Get busy, wives, submitting to your husbands sacrificially. You better get busy doing this because Paul's commanded it. But that's not where Paul starts. Yes, these are commands. But if you go back and you look exegetically at how Paul frames the argument or how Paul frames this discussion, verse 17 is where the discussion starts. Verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with with the spirit notice that before paul begins to talk about husband and wife relationships parent and children relationships he starts it with be filled with the spirit be under the influence of the spirit now when, when he makes an analogy of being drunk with wine what do we say when somebody gets pulled over for being drunk or drunk driving they're driving while intoxicated or driving under the influence. They're under the influence of alcohol. And Paul says, in contrast to that, be under the influence of the Spirit. Be empowered by the Spirit. And then you go back to chapter 1 and you remind yourself what Paul said, that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. He's the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That we are blessed with every heavenly blessing, that God has made us alive in Christ, that we have the Holy Spirit living in us, empowering us, so that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so you ask the question, okay, what does it mean to be Spirit-filled? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Does that mean that you start barking like dogs and jumping from the chandeliers and being slain in the Spirit and running around babbling or speaking in tongues? Is that, is that what Paul gives? If there's anywhere where Paul would give a definition of what it means to be spirit-filled, you'd think that this, would, this is where um, you know, our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters would get a lot of their theology. But notice what Paul says. Paul gives four participles. They all end in I-N-G of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. If you just keep reading. Okay, so what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Verse 19, addressing, this is the first, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Okay, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? You are in gathered corporate worship 
worshiping the Lord with other believers and sisters, other, believer, other brothers and sisters in the gathered worship service. So being spirit-filled means you are a part of the Lord's day worship. You're joyful, you're present, you're singing, you're ready. You, you don't want to miss being together in corporate worship. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Second, he says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is more your private worship. You're having private times of worship. You're having your, your daily devotion. You're spending time with the Lord. You have this joy that comes from the time that you spend alone. So there's the corporate gathering where you're under the preaching of the word. You're gathered together in corporate worship. And then there's alone times where you are growing in Christ and he's giving you joy. And then third, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are a thankful person. You're not bitter. You're not resentful. You are thankful. And then, fourth, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You are a submissive person. You submit to the authorities in your life. You are humble. You are putting others before yourself. You are walking in humility. That's what it means to be spirit-filled. And then right on the heels of that, Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, so how do you preach this? Those are commands. Wives, you need to voluntarily submit to the leadership of your husbands. Husbands, you need to sacrificially love your wives. Okay, that's a command. But how do you do it? The only way you can do this is by being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. If you just preach and tell husbands to do a better job of loving their wives and you don't root it in being filled with the Spirit or who they are in Christ or take chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians and, and keep continually going back to that, you're going to frustrate your listeners. Husbands and wives are going to get frustrated. They're going to think that either they can do it in their own power or they're going to think they can't do it and feel frustrated. And you're telling them to do these impossible things. <laughs> okay, It's literally impossible at times for a wife to joyfully submit to her own husband. And husbands, it's very difficult to sacrificially love your wife the way Christ loved the church. So these are high and holy callings that are very difficult. And if you give these high and holy callings to husbands and wives and just preach the imperative, do this, you're going to crush your people. You've got to root it back in the gospel indicative. So in other words, when you start preaching the imperative text, when you start preaching the commands in the second half of Ephesians, you better make sure you regularly go back to the first three chapters and bring those truths back in. You're looking at the entire book of Ephesians. You're looking at the, the gospel indicative first, moral imperative second, and realizing how Paul has structured his letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us this way of preaching. Because if you only give moral imperatives and you never root them in the gospel indicatives, you are going to make legalists of people who think they can obey in their own power and look down on others, or you're going to create people that are just crushed in despair, that, that feel like they can't even live up to it. Because why would they even try? Because they feel defeated before they even start. They need to know who they are in Christ. They need to know what God has done to bless them. They need to know that they have the power of the Holy Spirit empowering them to do these things. So when you get to, you know, fathers, do not exasperate your children 
Or children, obey your parents. Again, the only way that children can obey is through the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way that parents and fathers and, and, and mothers can can lean and guide and raise their children is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then it talks about bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Again, the modern day application would be the employer-employee relationship. How can you be a good employer that walks in a manner worthy of the calling? How can you be a good employee that walks in a manner worthy of your calling? It goes back to your identity in Christ, who you are in the gospel, what the Holy Spirit is doing to empower you. And then it's got this whole issue of spiritual warfare when you put on the full armor of God. Again, that full armor of God goes back to the gospel. Paul just kind of bookends it with the, with the armor of God by saying it's all about walking in the gospel. When you look at each piece of the armor, you think about these are things that, that God has given us in the gospel. So you think about where he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The belt of truth, that's the truth of the gospel. You need to understand the truth of who you are in Christ, the truth of the blessings that God has given you. Again, the truth of chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians. The breastplate of righteousness. This is not your own personal righteousness that you bring to the table. This is the imputed righteousness of Christ that's given to you as a gift in justification, where you are credited righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, and you stand in that position permanently of being accepted by God because of righteousness imputed to you. And then the gospel of peace. You have peace with God through Christ. It's an objective peace that God has given to you as a result of your justification. The shield of faith. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's the gospel truth of who you are in Christ and what the truth of the gospel and the faith of Jesus Christ says about you. And then the helmet of salvation. Again, all the things in chapters 1 through 3. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The whole idea that it's the Word of God that gives you the, the, the only offensive weapon there. So in this case study of looking at Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, gospel indicative. Who you are in Christ, how you've been blessed in Christ, what God has done for you, the power of the Holy Spirit in you, being made alive in Christ, the new creation, your identity. Then Paul shifts with the strong therefore, chapters 4 through 6, moral imperative. Okay, in light of who you are in Christ and what God has done in chapters 1 through 3, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And Paul gets very specific in how you do that. So you do need to get specific in preaching those commands. Get very practical in the application of how you live that out. But you always need to make sure that you root it back in the gospel indicatives. Don't ever preach moral imperatives without rooting them in the gospel indicatives. If you do, again, you will create legalists who feel like they can do it all in their power, or you'll create those that are crushed and defeated that feel like they can't even begin to do it because they're so shattered in their um, weariness that feel like they can't even measure up. So there's a ditch. The ditch on one side is legalism. The ditch on the other side is despair. So how do, you, how do you avoid going into both ditches? You preach the moral imperatives rooted in the gospel indicatives. And this is a little bit hard work because it means that when you're just kind of diving into the text, you're kind of just focused in there on the passage and you're looking at the, at the commands and you want to make sure that you accurately you know, get the verb tenses and you get the meanings of the word and you, and you 
faithfully preach the text, and you want to faithfully preach the text, you want to preach the commands, you want to preach the application, you want to preach the obedience, but the hard work is, okay, in light of the entire book of Ephesians, and in light of the entire gospel that we know, you need to bring those gospel implications, those gospel indicatives back into your preaching to sprinkle them in there. And so one of the things that you need to do in preaching, and this is one of the things I, I hopefully do, I don't always do it, I'm not always successful, but I don't ever want to leave my people on a Sunday morning sermon with law or something they're supposed to do without offering them Christ as the answer, as the only one that can either done it for them or do it in them or, or bless them. And so I will call people to action. We'll preach the text faithfully of what they're supposed to do, but I always want to leave it with their eyes fixed on Jesus. This, you can do this. You can leave this place with encouragement today because you can be empowered to do this because of God in you, Christ in you, the power of the Holy Spirit. You can walk out of this place with encouragement. You can walk out of this place knowing that Christ gives you the ability to do this. And when you fail, you have the blood of Christ covering you and you're in a permanent position of being righteous before God. If you're only preaching moralistic sermons that tell people what to do, you chide your people, you, you kind of you know, get on them, you scold them, you, you guys need to get busy at doing this, you need to do a better job of this, or you, you guys just you know, you minister guilt to people saying these are the things you need to get busy doing. And there's a time and place for that, but they must always be rooted in the gospel indicatives. The only way you can obey is because of what God has first done in you and who you are in Christ as a result of the sovereign grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is helpful when you get to any New Testament text where there's a command. You need to always look at the entire context of the book that you're in. Like, for example, we just looked at Ephesians, but let's say that you're in the book of Acts or you're even in the book of Revelation or you're in one of the Gospels. That Gospel indicative may not be evident in the immediate text. And so this is where you have this redemptive, historical, uh, full hermeneutic. Um, this is called atomizing, A-T-O-M, like an atom, where you're just basically narrowing down your passage of Scripture and you're preaching that passage faithfully, but you're not preaching it in light of the entire Bible and the gospel implications. So when you're doing sermon prep or you're teaching or you're listening to sermons, one of the big things you've got to do is, okay, you, the first question, have I faithfully understood, interpreted, and explained the text in its literary, historical, grammatical context that I'm faithful to what it meant to the original hearers and I faithfully presented it? Yes, that's step number one. But step number two is, okay, what's the gospel implication? How do I live this out in light of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit given to me? And so that just takes a little bit extra work. Because that may not be clearly evident in the particular passage that you're working on that week. And so you need to have a very uh, broad understanding of the entire Bible, a broad understanding of the gospel, and, and bring those implications back into that to root those imperatives, those commands in gospel indicatives. Well, this concludes this podcast on gospel indicatives and moral imperatives. Again, this just takes some time to, to kind of work through these things, but uh, you can clearly see it, especially in Paul's 
book to the Ephesians. And if you have questions on this, always email me or uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can go to seancole.net. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Um, I do preaching conferences from time to time around the country where we talk about these types of things. And so if you'd, if you'd want me to come out and maybe lead a preaching conference in your area, uh, just let me know. I've done them in Nebraska and Colorado and Tennessee. And um, so would love to do that to kind of help pastors and teachers understand more fully how to, how to preach the, the full gospel so that we can elevate the glory of Christ and leave people in wonder and awe at His majesty and His glory. And until next time, let us keep our eyes on Jesus. <laughs>